Welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Here is your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof, a nationally recognized health educator, author of the award-winning book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, and creator of the Talk Puberty app. And welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof. This podcast is about people increasing their comfort levels to talk about puberty and other growing up topics. Puberty, if you haven't realized, is when our bodies change from that kid-like person to an adult-like person. And it's an important time for talking to young people. Puberty also deals with sexual organs, and therefore, it is a topic in sexuality. Yet barriers or things that stop us from talking with one another exist. So if you're one of those people who wants to talk about anything pertaining to sexuality, yet you feel awkward and unable to do so, this episode of the Puberty Prof podcast is definitely for you. In this episode, we're going to go over some of the existing barriers in which many aren't even our fault. And when I say we, it's because I invited Dr. Delmasio Dennis Flores to help me out. And I ran into Dr. Flores, well, not really ran into, but I've held onto an article that I've had for years that deals with parent-child sex communication And it's an overview of what goes on in the United States. So I invited him here today to help talk about this. And I thank you so much for being here, Dr. Flores, Dennis. Would you like to say hi to our audience? Of course. Uh, Hi, Lori. Hi, everyone. It's such a pleasure to join the podcast. Um, I'm Dennis Flores, joining you today from Philadelphia. And would you mind sharing a little bit of your background? Because I know that you're working for the University of Pennsylvania. You have a doctorate. You you're, have an RN degree in ACRN. I'm not sure what that stands for. Yes, no, totally. Um, so for the last five years, I've been an assistant professor here in the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. Um, that ACRN actually stands for AIDS Certified Registered Nurse which is really my main entree into this field. Um, When I went into nursing school about 16 years ago as a second degree, I knew that I wanted to specialize in HIV and AIDS care. And so that was my first um, entree into nursing. And I worked at the bedside. This was back in Atlanta for a couple of years. I was working in the very last HIV AIDS unit in the Southeast before it closed down. Um, And since then, I've been working in the field of sexual health, uh, both clinically and in the community. And as of the last few years, I've been a full-time researcher on sexual health promotion for families with uh, adolescents and specifically with LGBTQ adolescents. Wonderful. Uh, And thank you for explaining that. I know from the website that explains your current position and some of your history, it does note HIV. I didn't realize that your the A C R N is AIDS related, mm-hmm. and that's uh, some people don't understand HIV is still out there. Oh, totally. Um, and this is one of the things 
why we have certifications in HIV AIDS nursing is because so many things change about, uh, I want to say the original epidemic uh, that yeah. we've had to deal with. And so, uh, yeah, I keep that, uh, the acronyms there in my title. Okay. Thank you. And I learned something today already. Thank you. Of course. As I mentioned in my email to you that I referred to your journal article that you wrote some years ago that focuses on sex communication, particularly between parents and young people. Why did you choose to focus on that for your article and for potentially your dissertation? I'm, I'm not sure if it was related. Oh, yes, it totally was uh, part. It was the first portion of my dissertation. So as I said, uh, back in the day, I worked at the bedside uh, caring for people with HIV and AIDS. Um, and at some point, um, I guess you can say that I grew tired and I'm using air quotes here. I, I kind of got tired of uh, just helping people at the bedside when they already had HIV and AIDS or AIDS. Um, I realized that majority of the admissions that we had in the hospital were essentially my peers. These were folks who, if I didn't see them in the hospital, I'd really be hanging out with them in the gay neighborhood. Um, and so as a nurse, I started thinking about what are the ways that we can um, revamp HIV prevention and really try to get folks from succumbing to HIV infection. Um, and so as I was um, gearing up for graduate school, I was looking at the literature, looking at ways that um, folks, individuals, adolescents were informed about sexuality or socialized into their future selves as sexual beings. I realized, you know, the typical avenues such as sex ed in school settings, and then the conversations about the birds and the bees. And technically, that's what we call parent-child sex communication. Leave it to academia to complicate something as simple as the conversation about the birds and the bees, right? Um, but so when I was in Durham uh, at Duke University for my PhD, that's when I decided that before I can come up with interventions to assist families have discussions that are inclusive with adolescents, um, I needed to figure out what's the lay of the land. What's the literature? What do we know? And so I had to synthesize that and did a lit review, which is that article that you're talking about. Um, I figured that the very last article that did that was back in 2003, and it was time to provide an update, and which is why uh, I went about uh, conducting the literature review. Yeah, wonderful. And side note for you, I was a phlebotomist when I was an undergraduate, mm -hmm. and I did meet people um, that were had full-blown AIDS, and it was because of one particular patient that I think really opened up my eyes to that preventative piece versus going into medicine where it's more intervention, because I wanted to prevent as much as I could with young people. Not that if you're diagnosed with something, it doesn't mean you can't live with it, especially in 2023, yet it doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. And why oh. not have an easier and healthier life if you can. So we, we have another similarity there of working uh, with some folks in the past. Yeah, totally. I will always be a firm believer in primary prevention. Um, and so it seems like the work that we currently do now is right at the heart of that primary prevention field. Yeah. Well, before we jump into what you saw in that literature review, what you found about the barriers, can I ask, when you were younger, did you experience barriers in communication from a, pair, a caregiver or a teacher or anything? Yeah, most 
certainly. Um, so I, I didn't mention that I was actually born in the Philippines, uh, and that's where I grew up, uh, and I completed my first college degree. So I was around 20 when I moved to the States uh, permanently. I would visit as a teenager because my parents were here. Um, but as, we, as I was growing up or as we were still living back in the old country, um, as a closeted gay teenager, um, I actually knew that approaching my parents about my questions on sexuality, all these emergent uh, concerns that I might have had, that they were out of the question. Uh, because, you know, looking back, I don't think my parents had the capacity to, to engage in any kind of robust discussions with me. Because for one, they have a very strong Catholic background. Um, and generally for my parents, I will give them uh, some kind of credit. Uh, their focus at that point was you know, on other issues, very pressing issues such as economic viability. Um, and so the combination of that just discouraged me from seeking them out as a potential resource for the questions that I started contemplating uh, as, as an early teenager and then as I became an emerging adult. Thank you for sharing that, in which for our audience, note, even though you might have been raised in which there wasn't so much communication about even puberty, it doesn't mean we can't change things. Oh, yes, totally. So then if we jump to then, what did you find that was common barriers in the research? What would you say are the top barriers in sex education communication between parents slash caregivers and young people? Yeah, um, I think consistently we saw um, from the review that I conducted that knowledge deficit or this notion that parents think I don't have enough information or as robust a knowledge base to engage in discussions about highly complicated sexual health topics. That inhibits parents from feeling like they're an expert enough on the topic. Um, layer on top of this knowledge deficit, uh, what they perceive are as ineffective communication skills. Um, for example, and I love that you're smiling already. For many <laughs> folks, you know, many parents out there, and this is quite uh, um, a common occurrence, they don't even know how to strategically pause or how to use silence effectively when communicating with children. And there is value in that silence. So nonverbal communication is actually part of the, of the continuum of communication. Um, and we're not even talking about facial expressions and body language, right? So you may be able to talk the talk, regurgitate some of the sexual health information that you heard from your doctor or from when you were in high school, but if your face is frozen in fear or, or you look pained, you can't deliver these nuggets of wisdom or information to your children. Um, and do you think that these teenagers are buying what you're selling? I don't think so. So those are some of the barriers effectively that we've identified. If I can interject, I smiled and I love the effective communication stuff because I was a teacher, a health teacher in the K through 12 setting. And we have these national standards of skills. And one of the skills, and it's my favorite is effective communication skills. Mm -hmm. So this spring, I'm teaching a human sexuality course for future practitioners where we're gonna base it on effective communication. Yeah. And part of the reasoning is that even when they're teaching it in the classroom, I wanna ensure that if a student asks a question and it might be, cause I've been asked some pretty wild questions. And sometimes it's because their older siblings set them up to tell me, you know, to ask a question. 
but you have to have this face and you can't be like, oh my God, why, why did you, did you ask that? We don't want to have shame because I mean, with sexuality and a lot of topics for curious people, mm-hmm. and we just want to ask questions and sometimes to stir the pot a little bit, but you have to make sure you, you recognize you're not showing judgment for those questions. Exactly. And so part of the challenge for parents who do want to engage in these conversations is how do you keep your game face on at all times or that you're ready for when these plot twists happen, right? Uh, Or at least you're giving an expression of, I am open to this experience. Please, my child, ask me more or, you know, don't don't be afraid. So those are, I love that you're going to be teaching this course uh, because (laughs) it's highly needed. And two, for our listeners, even if you're trying to talk to somebody, and it might be a child listening, wanting, listening in, wanting to talk to a, a peer or a teacher or a parent, or an adult wanting to talk to their own kid, you know, you might hear some terms that you're not used to. Like when we talk about reproductive parts, like when I do puberty talks, I'll say things like, this is what happens to most boys, most girls. But sometimes people will say, this is what happens to people with a penis, This is what happens to people with the vulva. And that's how some schools or some educators are phrasing things, depending upon where they live and all that stuff. But if you're hearing something that you don't even know, it's okay to be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really maintaining um, an open system where you can ask to clarify, what did you mean by that? Or, you know, at least indicating that you need more clarity on it. And for those of you listening in, Dr. Flores and I are going to have a second episode that's going to talk about how do we bridge the communication. So there's going to be some reference here, but we're going to delve a little deeper in the next episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So were there other barriers that you you were going to mention? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 it's all good. Um, Yeah, so on top of the knowledge deficit and perhaps some communication skills that need polishing, Um, On a more serious note, too, uh, a lot of parents have formative experiences that are not only traumatic, but can be debilitating for them to revisit. And sometimes if a child without knowing any previous background on their parent asks something that might trigger the parent to revisit that traumatic experience, this is something for us to consider in the equation, in the communication equation. Um, And so addressing the primary barrier of did something happen before that might keep a parent, even if they really want to be the best resource for their child, something they need to work on themselves first before they can be the purveyor of sexual health information. So, you know, some of these uh, formative experiences of a negative um, orientation might include being coerced as a young person uh, into something that they weren't ready for before. We can talk about rape because it happens some kind of interpersonal violence in relationships. These are also uh, background experiences that inhibit uh, parents from having discussions. Um, Other things that we found in our literature review was that, and this is across the board, regardless of how old the parent is, how many children they have, what their race, ethnicity is, uh, and other uh, demographic background, universally, it feels like embarrassment or awkwardness about these conversations, it permeates uh, the ether and it keeps a good deal of parents from even taking that first step because they're already anticipating the embarrassment that either them or their child will will have as a reaction. Um, And so they don't even try, right? 
Um, additionally, very related to that are timing concerns. Many parents will say, I'm so afraid because my child is too young. I will not have a conversation. There you are with your smile. I love it because you've, you've heard this before. It's too early for these conversations or parents saying, if I have that conversation, it's like I'm giving them the green light to experiment and be sexual, right? So these are very common barriers. And I'd like to say they're myths that we've debunked because from the research, we know that it doesn't actually bear out. There is nothing to support the fear that discussing sex with your child means you're green lighting it for them. Actually, on the contrary, it delays the onset of sexual debut. Um, and so these are just some of those uh, barriers that are consistent across time, consistent across family structures and the backgrounds of individuals. And great points, because I do hear of these items as a barrier. And there's also one that came up when I was interviewing parents of third, fourth, and fifth graders. Some parents said that there was the embarrassment or awkwardness, not just with their own kids, but with other parents and caregivers. Mm -hmm. So if I talk to my child, but say if my child talks to their child and the parent gets angry, and it's like, but that's not about the other parent. It's about you and your child. And that's exactly what the norm is or, you know, peer standards. Uh, mm -hmm. peer, parents have their own set of peers. And if you're hanging out all in, in middle school at the carpool lane and there's a set norm at a given location, perhaps that, you know, this is something we don't do or because our school is part of a parochial district and that we're already looking at religious influences, which is very tangible in so many families. Um, yeah. Then you you kind of out yourself regarding if whether you're a liberal minded parent or, you know, that needs to be ostracized or it's just um, controversial. Right. Um, or you want to just keep your head down because you don't want to attract any kind of attention like that. So it's very convoluted. It's very complicated. Um, and bless, uh, you know, bless parents who, who do still want to insist on providing factual information to their children or maybe even the neighbor's kids. Who are hanging out uh, just because you know they're in the house. So if you're listening in and you're hearing this conversation noting, oh my goodness, that's me. You know, you're hitting the nail on the head that I don't have the effective communication skills. It was never taught, in which a lot of us were not taught that. Or if you had an early experience, that formative experience that maybe you feeling triggered by or have embarrassment, just please note it for yourself. It's okay that you have this, like you recognize this, because sometimes it's only by recognizing that these barriers exist that we can get past them. Mm -hmm. Yes. So as, as I said earlier, Dr. Flores and I are going to continue in the next episode talking about bridges because we're coming to the end of today's recording. But before we go, do you have anything else you'd like to share, Dennis? Sure thing. Um, parents need to be reassured that um, the factors that affect their ability to communicate uh, with their children about very sensitive issues, a lot of them actually were established long before they became parents. Um, and so it's not really as simple as them um, being firm in their resolve to provide communication. Uh, for example, if when they were children, um, and they never, as you said, received any kind of instruction from their own parents, 
we can't blame them for lacking a mental model for how these discussions are supposed to take place. And that was cemented way before they even contemplated having kids, right? Um, for others, they also might have had less than ideal experiences that then discouraged them uh, from broaching the same kind of conversations. But also, there might be some less than stellar episodes or experiences that then encourage other parents to do way better than their parents did. So there's no saying which direction a parent will go based on their previous experience, but this is only to highlight the fact that it's those primary experiences as a child that has a huge impact on how you perform as, uh, as a resource for your child. Yeah. And going back to the purpose of this podcast, it's to increase that effective communication skills as much as possible. And so if you're a young person listening in, realize that a lot of adults, <laughs> there's barriers that we have to get through. And we're all trying to do the best we can with the oh. tools we've been provided. So that's why to create more tools. And I just want to do a plug out there. Um, I did have somebody create the Talk Puberty app for me. And it's simple questions from my book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, with very simple age and developmentally appropriate answers, because it's another tool that a caregiver, a child can even look at and say, oh, let's talk about this. Make fun of the questions. That's great. But that's what where it seems like both Dr. Flores and myself were passionate about trying to help people do better um, to be happier and healthier, even to raise their kids happier and healthier. That's wonderful. Now, do you have a way that people can get in touch with you if they wanted to? Sure thing. Um, I've got my email that I can share with you uh, for people who are able to click online to the podcast, um, but it is Dalmacio, and that's spelled D-A-L-M-A-C-I-O at nursing.upenn.edu. I'd be happy to receive emails from folks um, and just connect with some of your readers. I mean, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll make sure that your email in today is in today's description. And if you can't find that, remember Puberty Prof, that's my Gmail name, or just go to pubertyprof.com and you can fill out a comment section there and I'll get you in touch with Dr. Flores as quickly as possible. So I thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Flores. And again, we're going to have our next episode talking talking about bridges. So I thank you to the listeners listening in. And again, if you have any questions, reach out to us. But for now, I hope you have a happy and healthy day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Puberty Prof Podcast where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow The Puberty Prof on Twitter or Instagram. The Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel, wants to hear from you. Go to pubertyprof.com or click on the link in this episode's description. There you can find more information, as well as ask questions to be answered by the Puberty Prof in a future episode. That's pubertyprof.com. Also, remember to check out the Talk Puberty app and the book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty. Until next time, this is the Puberty Prof Podcast.
where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. 